Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator from E.W. Clark Collis. Hi there. And uh, welcome to the Apple Store and welcome to this preview of not one, but two Eli Roth movies. The horror movie Green Inferno and the psychosexual thriller Knock Knock. Yeah, give it up. Uh, so in a second, I'm going to bring on uh, Eli onto the stage, and also Lorenzo Izzo, uh, who is the star of both uh, films. But before we go any further, let us see the trailer for The Green Inferno. can't just go invade a country because they're doing something that we think is immoral. I know. I just think I should be doing something about the rainforest. It's time to make a difference. So there we go, another Eli Roth uh, family-friendly uh, movie. Without further ado, uh, let me bring onto the stage director Eli Roth and actress Leonard Rizzo. I'm sorry, I could believe mangled your name there, didn't I? That was like a Travolta level. It was like, run, 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 run. I do apologize. Perhaps you could. Perhaps you could. My name is Lorenza Izzo. I, I do. There we I go. do apologize very much. <laughs> Hi, <okay>. everybody. <laughs> So maybe we could start by, uh, uh, I assume this was an easy shoot? Piece of cake, <laughs> no problem, yeah. Um, it was all in studios, you know, it was great. Because I, I think I saw Burbank, pretty some, good. some planes coming over from Burbank Airport. Yeah, it was, um, no, it was crazy. I, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of these Italian cannibal movies from the late 70s and early 80s, like Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferox, even the more obscure ones like Sergio Martino's Mountain of the Cannibal God. And I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of these, these directors that are still alive. 
And they really went into the jungle and risked their lives and made these crazy ass movies and shot with indigenous tribes. Like if similar to what, you know, Werner Herzog did when he did Fitzcarraldo or Gary, the wrath of God, it's like, it's like these people went off into the jungles of Peru and Colombia uh, and made these insane films. And I wanted to make a movie like that. I felt that movies in general have gotten so safe and kind of stale and don't take any risks. A lot of them are done in computers or done on a stage and there is nothing wrong with that. But I miss that dangerous type of cinema where you watch it like the way you watch Apocalypse Now and you go, the people that made this movie were fucking insane. Like who the hell would do that? How could you do that anymore? And then I thought you couldn't do that with the Amazon because the Amazon's disappearing. And I thought, oh my God, that's, that's my entry point. And to make the movie, you know, I said, if I'm going to make a movie that in my, the brain of my video store, now in, in the iTunes store, sits next to Cannibal Holocaust, it has to be, you've got to go for it. You've got to just find people that are crazy enough to follow you into the jungle and go in with a machete and a camera and, and come out with a movie. And we went into the Amazon in Peru, farther than anyone has taken a crew before. We, we went hours up the river on a boat until I found this village, which was straw huts and hammocks. And they're, they're a farming village. And there was a girl washing clothes in the river. And we pulled up and said, can we shoot a movie here? My God, there's, there was no electricity running away. They're completely cut off. They're, they're just geographically cut off from society. They're not a, an actual indigenous tribe. Um, but we, we asked them, you know, you know, I said, can we shoot a movie here? And my Peruvian producer said, we would have to explain to these people what a movie is. Most, there's 300 people in the village. Most of them had never left the village before. So we had to conceptually show them what a movie was. And they said yes. And Lorenzo, how was this? When this was suggested to you, were you like, oh, yeah, this sounds like a great idea? Or, or did you have any qualms about going into the jungle? I mean, what I have in common with Eli, I think, is that we love adventures and I love submerging myself in different cultures and understanding people from different places. So for me, it was like, yes, I want to do this. I want to do this adventure, go to the jungle and, and shoot a real movie. That was a really attractive aspect of the whole project, too, to do it kind of guerrilla style, but just really feel everything and, and, and get to act in a real location with real elements. However, <laughs> all that excitement kind of melted down to a, whoa, where am I? What am I doing? What was I thinking? And what was the moment <laughs> when you most regretted your decision, as it were? I, uh, I, I think every day when I woke up, I would say, what, I don't know if I can curse, but I would say, what the, am I doing here? And at night again, what the, am I doing here? And during the day, it kind of went up and down and up and down, you know, between, you have to imagine that the jungle is a beautiful place, but the conditions are relentless and they are awful. The heat is at least between 100 and 100 and 130 degrees daily. The insects are all over. There's spiders the size of my hand. There's Azula ants that if they bite you is like a gunshot. Um, the mud, the rain, um, being isolated from everything, the near-death experiences, the digestion issues. I could go on for hours here. But um, the beauty of it at the same time was you know, having this amazing, awesome experience and working with people that, like Eli said, had never been, you know, had, had never seen cameras. And I, I, Spanish is my first language language and it was just amazing to get to share time with people like this that I don't think I'm ever going to get a chance to do again. And Eli, actors are famous for saying they'll do any, like if you ask an actor if they can ride a horse, they'll say they can, uh, whether or not, I mean I was wondering how much vetting you did or how much you warned actors before my, going on this adventure. My question was, can you have a diarrhea attack in the jungle and survive it? 
Literally, that was the question. Because I was like, not only are we going to have no makeup trailers, we're going to have no, there's no toilets, and everyone's going to get sick. And will you get yellow fever shots? And the yellow fever shots were a good test. A lot of people like, I'm, that's, I'm not doing it. Um, but once every, and a lot of people, amazingly, I didn't get sick, but everybody got sick just from getting the shots before you went there. Um, but that was really the test. You know, you just had to tell people very clearly up front what they were in for and make it clear that there is no going back. Like there's no calling home. I was like, and I'd say that no very clear. I was like, <laughs> I don't want someone that's going to show up and start crying and calling their agent and complaining about the condition. This is, this is going to be the shoot that for the rest of your life, you're going to look at everyone else like they're a pussy. Like you're going to be the one that survived this movie. And every time you hear all these other, you know, bitchy actors complaining, you're going to go, you know what? I survived the Amazon because I survived that fire in Inglorious Bastards where I was nearly melted by 2000 degree heat. And we were almost burned to death and I had blisters on my face and it was awful. And I was like, after I survived that, like you showed, like, you, like, you know, you can't be a pussy. So you, the, the truth is you never know until you get there. But we tried to vet them as best we could. And, you know, first they have to get on a plane to Chile, and then they had to fly to Peru, and then to Tarapoto, and then it's an hour in a Land Rover, and then 90 minutes up the boat. We were all mentally prepared. I wanted everyone to feel like they were, they were going into battle when they made the movie. And, you know, the cast was incredible. It was very, very difficult conditions. For example, we finally found one porta potty that we figured out how to get it to the village. So we're like, great news, we have a porta potty. We got it in a boat, put it in the Land Rover, then got it in the boat. And I remember the boat with this thing just like going, it's the same boat seeing the movie, going out to the village. But if you went in the porta potty, the wild horses in the village had a game called kick over the porta potty. The horses would attack the porta potty when someone went in it. So you'd have to go in pairs and someone would like stand there and fend off the wild horses. Like we would have bulls that just walk through the middle of shots and there's no stopping a bull. It's like, all right, guess we're, guess we're waiting on the bull. The bull just kind of look at us and, and keep going through the too. roost. Oh my God, the roosters. And we thought it was the iPhone. <laughs> we thought it was an iPhone. We're like, whose phone is that? Who's it? Like, ah! And they're like, no, Eli, that's that's an actual rooster. So like, it was crazy, yeah. But it was it was one of those things where everybody, you know, there's a scene where Lorenza, you'll see her in in the, goes into a river, and the the thing about shooting in Peru is the conditions are so hazardous, the weather changes everything. Like you'll scout a location and you come back the next day and it's gone, it's been washed away, which is what happened when we have a scene where she goes into the river, and so we had to kind of rejigger the scene around this rock, and. The rock, we had no idea how strong the current was. We kind of tested it, but Lorenza just went in and was really almost getting sucked under. And we had her by a rope, so we're like pulling the ropes. The rope's going up her ribs, so she's really screaming for help. But the river was so loud, we couldn't hear her screaming for help. We just thought, I'm like, wow, she's really giving it in this take. This is amazing. <laughs> and then after it was cut, she was like, you know, throwing up water and going like, I, I was drowning there, guys. Thank you. Wow. And were your family or friends worried for you at all when... When you went away? You know, it, my family was in Chile. Thank God I had family a little bit closer. You know, the rest of the cast are American and Canadian, so they were really isolated. It was far, physically very far away, so props to them. And still, we were very isolated, and I think we only had cell reception one day. It was our day off on Sundays. So my family got to see kind of my desperation build and build and build up. But I think by the third Sunday, I was like, Mom, get in a plane. Just come get me. Get me out of here. Like, it was a little bit like that. But at the same time, we were all in the same thing. And I had worked with this crew before um, in Aftershock and in previous projects. So even though the conditions were crazy, at the same time, I was surrounded by a bunch of troopers and people that I knew. So that was made it better. Uh, Eli, what, what, what problem do you have with people going abroad 
What's what's your issue with with this? After well, I know this is uh, this is the third third film in my travel trilogy, and I think there's a natural. I I don't know why, where it comes from. I mean, I traveled a lot when I was a teenager and when I was young. I lived in Iceland. I was an exchange student in France. I went to Russia. I really kind of came back and got a very different perspective on America by the time I was 20 years old. And I think it's something like 12, at the last I checked, it's something like 12% of Americans own a passport. So Americans really like to stay local. They don't really travel, whereas everyone else in Europe, you're forced to know your neighbors because they're right next door and you've been at war with them and you can take a train there. So it's just a different mentality and you just get a different perspective. So I like college students that are smart enough to know better and that go and do stupid things. You know, they're high school, you feel they're irresponsible, but like I liked it, you know, in Cabin Fever, I, I always think I'm making a different movie, but I realize I'm just making the same movie over and over in one form. Um, you know, Cabin Fever, they're going as far away from their can, from their, you know, from what the, they know is safe. They're going into the woods for partying and irresponsibility. In Hostel, they're going to get this forbidden sex that they think they can't get in America. And in Green Inferno, it's really about this vanity form of activism that I call slacktivism, which I saw happening. Started with Occupy Wall Street, where it starts as this very important cause, this kind of watershed moment in our culture. But months later, there was a relative of mine, and it was like he graduated college, and we're like, isn't, isn't he working? Isn't he getting a job? And they're like, well, he likes to occupy. It's like, really? He doesn't want to work at Starbucks? It's like, no, nah, his friends go. They meet girls. It's fun. Like, that was a cool thing to do because why get a job? You can just show up and complain. That was completely, you know, but of course, no one could accuse him of that because he was occupying. Then after we wrote the script, Coney 2012 happened. And everyone, and I did not tweet the YouTube video. I didn't. I was just like, okay, great. But I didn't tweet it. People were like, what's wrong with you? Don't you care about child soldiers? You insensitive Hollywood asshole. You, these kids are dying and you haven't tweeted the video and Rihanna tweeted it and Justin Bieber tweeted it and you you don't care and, and suddenly everyone's tweeting it so no one will accuse them of not caring but then a month later it's free pussy riot and people are like what's wrong with you how come you didn't tweet the hashtag don't you care about freedom of speech oh you must be pro putin and then it's bring back our girls like oh really so you're pro pokemon you want to kidnap girls you didn't tweet and all of a sudden there's the ice bucket challenge and you're like oh look at everybody's like hey let's raise money for als two weeks later it's a bikini contest look how hot i am here i am at seven percent body fat raising money for als give me more followers look at all those likes yep raising money and I just call bullshit on all of it. I think that, that something starts and then this term social, you know, I called it slacktivists but this term social justice warriors come out which is exactly what it is. It's people that are these like keyboard warriors just clicking and they're going to boycott you because they don't want to listen to you and they think something's wrong so they're going to shame you and it's just bullshit. It's just people sitting at their computers pushing buttons. So I want to see those kids crash in the jungle and get eaten. I'm fucking sick of all of them. <laughs> I swear to God I can't stand it. But you see the kids in Green Inferno they want it instantly. You know, it's like Justine's, her, her Richard Berge plays her father, who's a lawyer at the UN. He's like, no, there is process. There is law. And she meets this guy who's like, screw all that. You need your phone. That's how you make change. You shame people. You stream them. You embarrass them. And then they change instantly. And she gets caught up by this charismatic guy. But you can see the kids in Green Inferno aren't even really interested in saving the Amazon. They're interested in getting recognized for saving the Amazon. They don't want to save the village. They want Twitter followers. And the moment they shut down the protest, they're crying. They're upset. But when they're retweeted by CNN and they're on the homepage of Reddit, they're like, we did it. We did it. Because that's the end game for a lot of these people. So that's really, that's really, it's not that I have anything against people traveling. I just see this, this kind of self-righteousness and sanctimonious culture that, you know, social, I do believe that social activism is an important thing. I mean, you can, I wouldn't know what was going on in Ferguson if there weren't those videos, but at the same time, it's also, everybody's jumping on a thing to appear so, you know, to, to appear like they really care about these causes, but really they're just doing it to look good. So you have uh, two films coming out. 
the Green Inferno, and then Knock Knock. And Knock Knock really proves, I think, that if you can you can get into trouble if you leave the house. Yeah. And you can get into trouble when it comes uh, to your door. You can just fucking stay in the house, and you're going to get into a lot of trouble anyway. Uh, so uh, probably the best way to explain uh, Knock Knock is to have a look at the trailer. Dad, are you sure you can't come to the beach with us? Dad, he needs to stay here and do some work. Bye, guys. Yes? We're so sorry to bother you, sir, but my phone got wet and she left hers at her house. Oh, I'm sorry. But if you want, you can come in and use my phone. Yeah. You're a lifesaver. Not everyone would let strangers into their houses. You don't look that dangerous. I'm not so sure. Could we maybe throw our clothes in your dryer just for like 10 minutes? Sure. How long have you and your wife been together? 14 years. Being with one person your whole life is going against nature. Well, when you love someone. Come on, Evan. Buckle your seatbelts. We may be encountering some turbulence. Guys, I have your clothes. They're pretty much dry. <laughs> Surprise! Oh, stop, stop, stop. I can't do this. I'm married. Yes, you can. I thought you guys left. No, no, you I'm not hungry. We can forget this habit. I made a mistake. Go! I'm calling the police. Cheating Evan. Cheating Evan who? Cheating eventually gets you killed. You've been a bad boy. Your family are victims of your perverted behavior. This is what happens when you break the rules, Evan. We have to punish you. I want to play hide and seek. Evan! Ready or not, here we go! You came out to me! What was I supposed to do? I'm glad we knocked on your door. <laughs> I know that guy. What? I know that guy. Yeah, Keanu Reeves, <laughs> the greatest. Or um, that guy, yeah. Clearly, that's uh, a, a very different type of film to The Green Inferno. What, how, did, how did this uh, other film come about? Uh, well, Knock Knock, you know, we had, we had such an amazing experience. I have this terrific, uh, terrific team in Chile with this group. Where's our producer? Nicolas Lopez, right there. He's on this, raving. Uh, Nicolas is our co-writer and producer. He produced uh, Knock Knock and Green Inferno with me and our partner, Miguel. And... Uh, we wanted to write something, obviously, after going to the jungle and five hours of traveling, I wanted to write something that was more contained. And our friend Colleen Camp, who's a producer and an actor, showed us a film she made that was 40 years, 40 year old film that was completely lost and unreleased and only released on bootleg called Death Game. And directed by a man named Peter Trainer. And we loved the setup. It was a fantastic, fantastic thriller. The setup of the guy, the two girls show up, and then he has sex with both of them and they just ruin his life. Like, they just, they won't leave. Um, and so we wanted to do a, a film like that, but something like Fatal Attraction, that, that kind of, and also like an early Paul Verhoeven film or Polanski's Death and the Maiden, something that was like, that really felt like that old psychosexual thriller. And for me, Green Inferno is my mic drop. I'm just like, after the bloody, I'm just like, all right, 
we're done. Like, there's, I don't know where to go from there. It's so violent and so gory and so intense that I, I remember what Peter Jackson did after Brain Dead when he made Heavenly Creatures, and I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do a movie with either, like, one kill or one drop of blood, but, you know, we, it's something that's incredibly tense and stylish and really a much a, a performance piece. You know, I think that one of the things that makes my films, the, the kills work, is that the acting, the actors are so good, but the, the death overshadows it. So I really wanted to write a vehicle for Lorenzo that's a very different character, that, you know, should write a starring role for her that's a very different character from Justine in Green Inferno, um, but also write a great character piece. You know, we, we got, you know, Keanu Reeves gives, I think, one of the greatest performances he's ever given. I think he's, it's no accident the guy's been famous since the 80s, and he really doesn't get credit for being a great actor, and he's amazing, and he gives, it's the first time he's ever played a dad in a movie, and there's a new star, Ana de Armas, who's a star in Spain, and this is her first English language role. So I wanted something that would be dark and sexy and edgy and dangerous, but without the, without the blood to show a different side of my, my writing and directing. And Lorenzo, was this, in a sense, tougher than the Green Inferno? I mean, if you're if you're being half drowned in a river, it's relatively easy to act that you're being half drowned in a river. Whereas here, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering whether this was this was a trickier task in some ways. Um, Although you did have toilets, I, I'm sure. <laughs> I was very excited about the AC situation and the toilets. That was definitely a plus. But yeah, um, I mean, Green Inferno was not easy in any way, not physical or emotional. But you're right, there was a lot to react to and the elements were all there to work with. Um, yeah, <laughs> Knock Knock was quite a challenge. It was a complete different world. I was like, yay, three characters, a closed, like, one house. Like, what a blessing. Um, but yeah, it, it comes with its own set of challenges and, and um, difficulties, which is basically the movie lies on the acting and on the performance and, and the wonderful camera work of our director of photography, Antonio Cuercha. So it was a whole different kind of boat to jump in that I was so thankful to get the chance to because the character I play has so many different personalities going on at the same time that it was a blast for me and of course that was an awesome difficult challenge that I was ready to jump into and what, what was Keanu like I mean it, it, I did a Q&A with him here about a year ago for John Wick and he couldn't have been he was a lovely guy Ch but Keanu's the best but but you were sort yeah. of very aware not through anything he did but like he had big dudes around him you know I mean I mean you were aware that this was a very famous individual that, that, that Keanu in showed Keanu Skyped with me directly, and he didn't have any assistant and no entourage. He showed up by himself. He brought a friend just, just to hang out, and he couldn't have been cooler and easier. And, and he was just the nicest guy. Our producer, Cassian Elways, got him the script, and Cassian had done two movies with him. He's like, you're going to become best friends with Keanu. And that guy showed up, and he is... He's been through it all, and he's done so much, and there's, there really, there's no ego. I mean, the guy just wants to give you everything. He let us cut his hair in the movie, and he came right off of John Wick, and he was, like, Keanu's favorite thing in the world is John Wick, and talking about John Wick. Like, he was like, we're like, what is John Wick? Because none of us knew. We're like, what is this movie? It doesn't really tell you. It's called John Wick. He's like, oh, man, who fucking shoot you in the face? And we're like, what, what's the plot? And he's like, I just fucking elbow this one guy. They fucking kill my dog, right? So I just fucking elbow him, and I fucking shoot him in the face. And, I shoot and he did this live performance of John Wick. So we would just, like, make him do John Wick live for us the whole time. Um, but he had a total like sense of humor about like Point Break and Bill and Ted's and and you know every time he was tired he'd sit there and be like oh sad Keanu are you sad he's like I wasn't sad that was just tired and the guy took that photo like he's a great and there was a great day where it was on Reddit that he gave away seventy five million dollars to the stunt team on the Matrix and we're like dude that's amazing he's like what and we're like 
It says on Reddit, you're the, like the top, you're the number one topic. It says you gave all your money to the stunt team on the major. He's like, what are you talking about? We're like, yeah, you gave $75 million. He goes, what? We think I gave $75 What? I, first of all, $75 million? I was going to, what do you, I, I mean, I love the stunt guys, but that's, uh, that's wrong. C call Reddit. Can't you email Reddit and change Reddit? We're like, nope, it's on the internet and it's good for our movie. We're not changing it. And he's, he's totally like disconnected, but that guy. It was the first time he'd ever played a dad, and he gave everything to it. And so I, I cast these, I found these two kids in, in Chile, these fantastic kids that were Jewish. So they brought me like macaroons. It was the first day of Passover. They loved it. So the mom was like, that's the bear Jew. They were super, the kids were great. And they spoke Spanish and English, but they were all over. They were like, what's with your hair? My mom said you're famous. Why are you, are, you're not strong. Can you fight me? Can you stop a bullet? Like they, and he's like, dude, the fucking, these fucking kids, what do I do? You know, I was like, you're their dad now. You figure it out. So the first day, I remember it's the scene where it's Father's Day and, and Keanu was like, kids, it's Father's Day. And, and I was like, cut. He's like, what? I was like, um, I know you just played John Wick, but try it like you don't want to shoot your fucking kids in the face. And he's like, fuck you. I'm like, remember the guy from the Nancy Myers movie? Like the charm. Watch me. He's like, oh yeah. It's like, hey kids. Like he just was so, you know, he has this moment where he loves like kind of being that bad guy, but he's got this amazing smile and warmth and vulnerability. And the dude just gives everything. I, I think he should get an Oscar for this performance. I swear to God. I, I want people to watch this movie and think of him differently. I think we are seeing the Keanu sons. I think we're going to see another like 25, 30 years of amazing performances from him. And what was he like to, to act opposite? I mean, this is really like a play, this movie. I don't, I don't mean in any... No, it is. Yeah, uh, I, I don't mean, you know, it's not... It's not uh, the importance of being earnest, but uh, you know, it is like a closed in space. It's essentially a three-hander. What, what was it like working with Keanu in, sort of in that intimate situation? Neo. I'm talking about Neo. I am Chilean. I'm from Santiago, Chile, this strip of country in the South America. I grew up with his movies. When I heard he was in, he, I was like, I couldn't quite process it, and I, I didn't throughout the whole shoot. And I, we, we recently went to the Deauville Film Festival with him, and they, tributed, and they did a tribute to him. And we're in this massive theater in France, and they're showing all these movies that he's done, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. I'm like, holy fuck. I'm in a movie with Keanu Reeves. And it's not just I'm in a movie with him, I'm opposite him the whole time. And honestly, he's a fascinating human being. He's the sweetest, most vulnerable, but committed actor I've ever met. I learned so much from him, and I also got to mess around with him a lot. Like in between takes, <laughs> me and Anna Adamas would jump at him and tickle him and annoy the shit out of him. We would make him do selfies. He had no idea what selfies were. <laughs> And then by the time Eli said action, he was already like, oh, like so annoyed with us. It kind of worked well. Um, but I honestly thank the opportunity every day. He's truly a magnificent human being. Like he's honestly the chillest dude ever. He would sit down and tell us all of his stories, the darkest ones and the happiest ones. He's a very like open human person. Like it's, I mean, I'm, uh, he's amazing. Um, I'm gonna throw questions out to the audience in a second, but uh, Eli, can you tell us what you're doing next? Uh, yeah, I'm in prep on a movie called Meg. It's a book that I'm going to be doing for Warner Brothers. It's a Megalodon movie, like a giant prehistoric yeah, shark. Not another Megalodon movie. I know. We need <laughs> it, man. We, no, we need this one. I, I basically was like, uh, you know Miss Pac-Man? I was like, I want that, but like a giant shark the size of a bus just fucking eating everybody. So it's going to be, I'm, I'm really excited about it. We're doing, I'm working with some amazing, amazing, like the top designers and VFX houses and they're doing the conceptual. We just turned in the rewrite. Warner Bros. is very happy and doing the conceptual artwork now. And it's a huge, it will be a, a monster production, but I've, I've done five movies now. Everything's been in that, like last two movies I did for $5 million a piece. So it'll be fun to do a movie at 20 times that budget. I can't wait. If they want to give me money to spend on a giant shark, I will happily do it. 
And then Green Inferno opens this Friday. This is that Friday, correct? yeah. And then Knock Knock. October October 9th is Knock Knock. All right, fantastic. So who has a question? Hey Eli, all right. Hey. First thing, you said a lot of like the Italian Mondo films are your real inspiration here. So two questions. One, what's another type of horror you kind of like seem really inspired by and want to get into? And the second one, what's a good way for like filmmakers nowadays to sort of like make a horror film that kind of like stands out really and is original and also really good and exceptional? But what's a what's a good like way to kind of find that? Well, to answer your question, I'm always discovering new types of uh, films. Like there's a, a Mexican. Uh, director I just discovered directed a film called Poison for the Fairies that like there's almost no blood and it's just tension and suspense and I was like how have I gone my whole life without seeing this film and I'm the black cat is another bad the black is a film he had so I'm, I'm trying to track down all his movies um, but it's fun when you discover one type of movie and there's this whole kind of like nest of cinema that you didn't know where it's like this treasure chest and you just dive into it um, even the Italian cannibal movies, I thought I'd seen everything, and then I missed one that was called Massacre in Dinosaur Valley by Michele Massimo Tarantini, who had done a ton of sex comedies. And why would you ever think it had anything to do with cannibals? Because it's called Massacre in Dinosaur Valley. Fucking awesome cannibal movie. Loved it. Fantastic. Worth the $30, the DVD I paid for it on eBay. Um, and then as far as making a good movie, you know, there is no substitute for great original ideas and executing them thoroughly. You know, David Robert Mitchell's film, It Follows, is such a good idea, and it's so well done, and you're watching it, and that opening scene, right from that opening scene, it doesn't over-explain it, you don't really know what's going on, it sort of lets you catch up to the movie. He shot it for under a million dollars, he shot it in Detroit, he got new actors, and you're like, who is Maya Monroe? Like, everyone that's in it, you, they're fantastic. And that just, you know, even the Babadook, you know, you watch the Babadook, and that kid is amazing, and she's amazing, and these are not expensive movies. I mean, the truth is, if you have an idea, look what, look what Oren Pelly did with Paranormal Activity. I mean, that guy had 50 grand and, a, and just video cameras, and he made one of the scariest movies ever. So there is no magic formula for what makes a good movie, but I think you can't look at what else is out there and try to copy it. I think you have to say, you know what no one's ever done? This. This is a great idea for a movie. And then execute it the best you can. Hey, Eli. Um, I got a question. If you're going to make a movie kind of in the vein of Cannibal Holocaust or, sorry, or make them die slowly, how does the censorship and like bringing that back to the MPAA, are you able to keep exactly what your screenplay was or did you have to cut any of it out? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the ratings board gets a lot of flack, but very few people see it from where I'm sitting, which is when you make a horror film like Hostel 2, with the ratings board, we go back and forth. There's no appeals. We just discuss it. And when I show them a cut, they go, this is the area we're concerned. I go, let me take a look at it. There's a real discussion. In New Zealand, one person said, I'm cutting the entire Heather Matarazzo scene, bathtub scene, gone. There's no discussion. That's it. In Germany, they said, we're cutting it. And if you have an unrated version, it'll be illegal and we'll arrest anyone who sells it. That happened in Germany because uh, there were shootings that were going on. So politicians everywhere else in the world the ratings board are, po are politicians. Now in France, Green Inferno's not coming out because it's a horror movie, and one person at one cinema chain said that because kids showed up at a horror movie and vandalized the cinema, all horror movies are banned in France. There's not a single horror movie being released in France, not one, because one person decided that's what's going on at their theater chain. So when you're making these movies, they're going to push people's buttons. And when you have, you know, America, we have, shoot and unfortunately, violence is part of our culture and there's shootings all the time, but we see other causes for it. It's not, and we've gotten over blaming movies and video games. 
Europe and the rest of the world, there's still new, relatively new phenomenons having these shootings. So the politicians grandstand, and the first thing they do is they go after violent movies and video games. They just cut them. There's no discussion. So the ratings board, they're actually a group of about 20 or 25 people. They're all creators and artists. I mean, they're teachers and parents. But when I brought them Green Inferno, you know, the, I, I think what makes the other films of their time in Notorious is a lot of animal killings and Ferox and Holocaust. There's rape in those movies, and that's not part of Green Inferno. I mean, it's actually kind of a pro-animal movie in a weird way. It's like very strong. Like the pigs are free, the animals are free, the animals are untouched. Like the humans, are, the humans become the meat, um, showing that we're basically all meat. You know, so you know we have someone civilized eating steak, and then the people basically get turned into steak. So um, with the ratings board with Green Inferno, I showed them the movie. The first conversation, we were just laughing. They were like, we don't even know where to start with this. But eventually, we got to a place, <laughs> back and forth, where they understand what my audience wants. I was like, nobody wants to see the PG-13 version of The Green Inferno. When people go to see The Green Inferno, and it's got my name on it, there are expectations. Like, in a way, Hostel 1 and Hostel 2 are the setup for Green Inferno. So if I don't top Hostel 2, people are going to be fucking pissed. So the goal here is to have a movie that erases those other two films, that obliterates them, that's like, oh my God, those films were just a warm-up for this. And, and the people know that, and they understand that. So they're like, okay, we get that, so let's figure out a way that we can warn. So they came up with the term aberrant violence. Violence that was so crazy, they didn't have a word for it. So they're like, we created a term for your movie. Your film has aberrant violence. I was like, that is like, I was so touched. I was like, that is so... I sent them cupcakes. I, I did. I sent them cupcakes and Snooky's cookies and flowers. And I was like, that you did that for me meant so much because basically they could have said, we're going to chop your movie. But instead of chopping your movie, they're like, let's create a word that warns parents. And that's how cool the MPAA is. Now, other people have different experiences with them. But the reason the Green Inferno is getting out there for the fans and it's R-rated and says aberrant violence is because of the ratings board. I would be surprised if they ate those cookies. To be honest. No, they did. <laughs> I actually knew it. Now that you mention it, I found like gummy eyeballs. I did. I, I sent them like eyeballs and fingers. I went to like a Halloween candy <laughs> store and I got them like gummy body parts and sent it along with that. So yeah. Hey, how you doing? Um, Great. It's a pleasure talking to another Boston guy too. Um, awesome. Yeah. Um, I have a question about uh, first-time filmmakers. I'm making the step up from short films to features. Uh, what advice would you give for uh, in terms of financing? And I'm trying to get that. Trying to just take that step further, just push it even more. I think if you want to try a feature, you know, what Nicolas Lopez did back there, he made a movie called Que Pena Tu Vida, which translates into Fuck My Life, and he shot it. The first movie that was ever shot on a Canon 7D was Nicolas's movie, and he blew it up to 35. Nico's the master of it. He, he makes what he calls walking distance movies, where he finds locations that are walking distance. He gets a 7D, he gets his friends, and he writes the movie around the locations. And he writes like a Woody Allen kind of movie where everyone gets paid 100 bucks and that's it. And they do it because he writes great characters. And he, and he shoots these features and they do exceptionally well in Latin America. They're getting remade and obviously he's writing stuff in, in English with me and doing English language stuff soon. But it's a great example that all you need are great ideas. That if you're going to make a movie, don't raise $3 million for your first feature. Write something that you can shoot with your friends in a location. Swingers is a textbook example. We watch Swingers again. Yeah. That's such an awesome movie. I mean, how, when did they shoot that? 
95. That's a perfect example. They're all best friends and they were like all out of jobs and they did it together. It's one of the most brilliant movies I've ever seen. I saw it recently. And even though it's from that time, I, as an actor, <laughs> I related to that so much. And that just goes to show that a movie that made that's made with very low budget and just friends and a brilliant idea can travel not only like in culture, but only also in time. So that's epic. So I would say make a movie that if you can get sponsors to pay for it, like Nicholas made a movie where he got Adidas to give him stuff, he got Apple, he got Netflix. Like he went to sponsors and brands and said, instead of spending a million dollars on a commercial, what if you give me twenty five thousand dollars and I, you know, put the, put the brand in the movie? And he did it, and he got like ten of them. So then he didn't have to pay them back because he didn't use investors. He got brands to give him money. So if you know a soda company, Monster Energy Drink, like you find everyone you know, hook them up, like can contact them. If maybe if you know an actor, you can get a star in it. It helps. Try and make a movie for a hundred or a hundred grand. Shoot it on a five D Mark III. Shoot it on a four K, like a tiny Lumix camera, and show that you can tell a story in ninety minutes and make it great. And then you can sell it to Netflix and use that to raise money. Don't spend three to five million dollars in your first movie because chances are because you want to make a movie that you can safely fuck up and go shit I could have done this so much better but if you really burn your investors on several million dollars you're kind of screwed um, my question is basically like so you do a lot of horror and you know torturous movie what was the idea or what was the movie or what was the clicker that said this is how I want to spend the rest of my life torturing people and putting it on film you know it's interesting because torture is 90 seconds of hostile and yet it's like you know of the five hours of filmmaking it's it's strong enough that it stands out I always say the blood stains your eyes you know it stains the viewers like the like the, the gore is so strong people can't kind of wash it out and that's okay I mean look I'm making horror movies and that's what they're being sold on um but the truth is, I grew up watching Star Wars. I watched movies. I remember when I was eight years old, my dad took me to see Alien. And at eight, I turned to my dad and I said, I want to be a producer. I just said it. It's because the credit said produced by. And it was like, my dad said, well, you know, Eli, the producer has to come up with all the money. And it said directed by Ridley Scott. And I was like, well, what does the director do? My dad said, the director gets to spend the money and tell everybody what to do. And I was like, oh, I want to be, I want to be a director. And then I started watching at like 10 Stanley Kubrick's movies. And it said produced and directed by. So I remember like at my bar mitzvah, the rabbi's like, you have to go and say for the congregation what you're going to do with your life. Because obviously every kid at 12 knows that. But I did. And I was like, I wanted to say, Eli's going to be a motion picture producer director. And I remember the rabbi looking at me going, but are you going to be a producer or a director? I said, I'm going to be both. He goes, why would you be both? And I said, because that's the only way to retain control of your cut. <laughs> and the rabbi had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. But I was that certain at that age. My bar mitzvah cake was a director's slate covered in blood splatters. I was cut in half with a chainsaw. People were like, well, what should we get Eli for his bar mitzvah? They're, my mom's like liquid latex, videotapes, fake blood, corn syrup, an oven to bake appliances. I was like a freak. This is all I wanted to do. I, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else except maybe teaching. Um, when you make a movie, how do you know that this will work with the audience? Do you do any studies before? or How do you know what the audience wants? Well, making a movie, we always say, is a faith-based system that you just have to have total conviction that you're right and that everyone's going to love it. Like you, because yeah, you, that's a very good point. You're the audience. I think when, at least when I make, I'm not a director at all, but I, I, when I think of that question, the first thing that pops to mind is I'm an audience. I love watching movies. What is going on around me that I want to see on a screen? What makes me angry? What makes me happy? What causes something in me that I would love to see portrayed? And everything I've done, like Hostel, people said, there is no audience for this movie. It will never make more than $10 million 
in total because it's just too violent. Nobody wants to see a movie about torture. And I was like, no, but people want to be thrilled. People want to be scared. People want to be taken on a roller coaster. And opening weekend, it, it did great. I mean, you'll never know. There's no accounting for public taste. You just have to believe that so strongly in your vision and when you're editing, you surround yourself with really good people. Like we have Lorenzo, I have Nicolas, our producer Miguel. You surround yourself with people that trust that go, no, 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 this could be better. This could be better. Or that's a little boring. Or that's a little confusing. You have your team around you. You're making a movie. It's not like painting where it's just you and you're painting. My mother's an artist and she's in her studio and she's painting every day. Your filmmaking is a team and you've got to surround yourself with people you trust because you get so close to it, you, you miss, you lose objectivity. But the truth is, I have no fucking idea if people want to go see a cannibal movie. I don't know. But my feeling is people are bored with horror. People want something other than, you know, characters in a haunted house. People don't want something PG-13. People want to come out of a movie that looks like Apocalypse Now. They don't know what they, you know, I remember thinking about Steve Jobs, the, the people not knowing what they want until they have it. A movie like this comes out, people are coming out of the movie going, I've never seen that in a movie before. And I think it's so hard to get an original movie in wide release that I think hopefully people really respond to it. But the truth is, there's no accounting for taste. You just have to have total belief and make your movie at a responsible price so that you make your investors their money back. And as long as you do that, you can make another one. Hey, so my question is actually for Lorenzo. I know, I know. Nah. <laughs> so basically my question is, I don't know if you've ever studied any types of technique. I'm sure you have. But my question is, how did you really find the mindset for both of these characters? I mean, they're both very out there. It's something that's not very close to self or something you can easily make truthful. But just by the trailers, you can see that you really dug deep and got into it. So my question is just, you know, how did you get there? Thank you. And good question. Uh, it's tricky. I, I wish I had one method for the way I do things. Um, I think it helps I'm a little crazy in real life. <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, a little. But <laughs> I did study acting for a little bit. I, I went to Lee Strasberg when I was 18. And I learned um, the method of Stalysnevsky and Lee Strasberg's teaching. And I, it was a great experience. But I learned I suffered too much because you use a lot of your old experiences to portray new feelings. And that just didn't work for me at a certain point. Um, what helps a lot is sort of loving your character, falling in love with that person and understanding how you would react to whatever she or he, whoever you're portraying is going through, prepping in your mind. It doesn't even, I mean, every actor has a different method, so whatever I do might not work for the next person. All I know is I have a deep, deep, deep passion for every character I make, and I love them to death, and I respect them to death, and I don't approach them or judge them in any matter. I just engross myself in their world and where they come from, what they do, and I just go with it. And I, I, I've been lucky to work with directors that have worked with me, that have um, you know, received my ideas and sort of my um, convictions of who I think this person is. And that comes a lot from where you grew up. You grab from whatever you have and just bring it to the table and hope people like it. But at the end, it's only real if you make it fucking real. That's the only really way. <laughs> well, Lorenzo, Eli, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Clark. A taste of these films. Uh, before we go, I should just say that I've seen both of these films, and they are both unforgettable for entirely, entirely different reasons. Um, once again, Lorenzo and Eli. Thank you. Thank you.